News, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. But in light of all of these specific prophecies concerning his first coming being fulfilled, we can trust that the other prophecies concerning his second coming are going to be fulfilled too. And that's why we have such a reliable, firm, and sure prophetic word. And that's why we know that Christ is coming again, because the word tells us, the word that is filled with prophetic statements. We, we know that Christ is coming again, not because we hope it, not because we've been taught it, but because the word says it. And it says it over and over again. It's written over and over in many different places in the scriptures. Just think about all the hundreds of perfectly fulfilled prophecies about Jesus' first coming. Some of them were one in a million shots. Why would we think that the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus' second coming would be any less accurate? I don't know about you, but I expect those to be just as accurate as the ones about his first coming. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff, the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We're studying the first chapter of 2 Peter, and today we've come to the middle part of Pastor Steve's final message in this series. In verse 19, Peter commented that as sure as his eyewitness experience was, the witness of the Old Testament rates even higher because God's Word always trumps personal experience every time. And the Old Testament is full of messianic prophecies. Let's see how Jesus used them even after his resurrection. Here's Pastor Steve. Do you remember when uh, Jesus met up with the disciples on the road to Emmaus? They were, they were so um, hurt and, and in despair because they, they said that we thought he was the Christ, he, we thought he was the Messiah, but, uh, but they killed him, and, and we don't know what we're going to do now. And the Bible says that Jesus explained to them out of all the scriptures, beginning with Moses, taking them through all the the, the old, what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, explaining to them how these things had to happen, that all the Old Testament Scriptures spoke of Christ. And they said, didn't our hearts burn within us? Wouldn't that have been glorious to be there and hear Jesus explain the Bible? But part of that is to understand that the prophetic word how Peter uses the prophetic word was he was referring to the Old Testament in its entirety, which includes all the prophecies about Messiah's first and second comings. Okay? So we know that the prophetic word means the Old Testament in its entirety. What then did Peter say about it that ought to give us and will give us confidence in Christ's second coming? Let's, let's move on. He said, we have the prophetic word, the Old Testament, made more sure. Now, what did he mean by that? Quite frankly, I need to tell you that there are good and competent Bible teachers who are divided on the interpretation and precise meaning of these words. Here's one view, and this is a view by, by many good Bible teachers, and I'll just, I'll just give it to you. And you know by giving it to you that I'm not going to agree with this. You know, I found that out when commentaries say, here are many views. They're never going to get to the view they believe is right until the last one. But it's helpful to know. Some take it that Peter is teaching that what he observed on the Mount of Transfiguration actually has made the Old Testament prophecies more sure or certain. That word more sure means certain, firm, reliable. And, and they believe that what he observed on the Mount actually has made the prophecies more certain 
or secure or sure in the sense that it has confirmed the trustworthiness of Scripture. In other words, they say that before the transfiguration, we only knew the certainty of Christ's second coming by faith, faith in the promises of the Bible. But now, now, because of Peter's eyewitness account of Christ's second coming appearance, what that has done has made us even more certain of the promises of Scripture because it has confirmed the Scriptures. We're sure, we were sure before, but now we're even more sure because of this eyewitness account. Now that's one interpretation and, uh, it is, it is held to by, uh, uh, perhaps most of the, the commentaries that, uh, that I have in my library, but uh, there are, um, I think there's a problem with this. There's, there are some reasons why uh, I don't hold to this. I'm going to tell you the, the main one. The main one is that, and the main problem that I see here is that uh, this view is based on having to add the word made to the sentence. If you'll notice your, uh, your translations, almost all the good translations have the word made added. It says, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure. You see, the word made was not in the original text. It's not in the Greek text. If you have a New American Standard Bible, or uh, I believe in a King James version, you'll see it's in italics. It's not that in the NIV. It should be because that's an added word by the the translators. And uh, when translators add a word, they're not trying to distort the Bible. They add a word in order to to try to clarify and smooth out a sentence because language just doesn't work where you take one language and put it into another and it's and it's a perfect fit. Sentence structure doesn't work like that. And so there are some times where translators, for our benefit, have added a word to just sort of smooth out the sentence. But I'm afraid in this case, uh, it hasn't uh, helped. It's, it's hindered our understanding. Here, I'm going to read to you the way it literally would read in the Greek text. And we have more sure the prophetic word. We have more sure the prophetic word. In other words, he's saying the Old Testament scriptures are more certain than Peter's eyewitness account of Christ's second coming. Did you get that? The Old Testament scriptures are more certain than Peter's eyewitness account of Christ's second coming. Now, how can this be? Let's think through this a little bit. Peter went to great lengths to build a case and to convince us that his observation of Christ's transfiguration gave us certainty of the second coming. Why then would he turn around and weaken his point by saying that what he said wasn't certain? Now we have something that's more certain. Does this mean that, that he's now changing what he just said, his eyewitness account, uh, his testimony is not certain? No, that, that wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't make sense that he, uh, that he just built a case and then he's tearing it down. No, the answer is this, that Peter is not saying that his eyewitness account is in any way diminished. He's, that, that's, that's illogical for him to build a case and then tear it down. But what he is saying, and watch this, if what he and the other apostles saw and heard make the return of Christ certain, and they do, then the Old Testament prophecies make the return of Christ more certain, more certain. You see, Peter is making a comparison with what he saw, which makes the coming of Christ certain. And what the Old Testament predicts, which makes the coming of Christ even more certain. He's not saying what he said, what he saw isn't certain. It's just that the Bible is more certain. And let me explain, how could it be more certain? Now listen, Peter's point is that his account of the transfiguration of Christ was only one proof. That's all it was. One event, one proof, one prophetic vision. 
and statement concerning the return of Jesus. That's all it was. It was an important one, but it was only one. However, the Old Testament scriptures, the prophetic word, offers hundreds, hundreds of promises and statements on his return. That's why it's more certain. Not because Peter, what he saw is uncertain, but because of the volume of prophecies that make it more certain. Do you realize that that the Old Testament contains 333 prophecies dealing with the coming of Christ? You ought to write this down because it can be very, very useful in evangelizing and witnessing to people. As they say things like, well, I don't believe the Bible. Well, you can tell them why you believe the Bible. And one of the reasons we believe the Bible is God's word is because of prophecy, fulfilled prophecy. There are 333 distinct prophetic statements concerning Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. 109 of them have already been specifically, and I might add literally, fulfilled in his first coming. The reason I I add and emphasize literally is because if they were literally fulfilled in his first coming, they will be literally fulfilled in his second coming. There's no reason to spiritualize any of these prophecies. But let me give you some examples. 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah predicted that he would be born of a virgin, and he was. About the same time, the prophet Micah predicted that he would be born in an obscure village by the name of Bethlehem, and he was. In Genesis, there was a prediction made that he would be the descendant of the tribe of Judah. Out of all of Jacob's sons, it would be this tribe. And later on, it was narrowed down to Jesse's family and then David's family. And then from there, David's line, a certain line coming through David. The prophet Zechariah predicted that he would come riding into Jerusalem on a colt. And he did, offering Israel the kingdom. Zechariah also foretold the exact price of Judah's betrayal of 30 pieces of silver. What an amazing prophecy that was. Isaiah 52 and 53 prophesied many of the details of of Christ's rejection and crucifixion. And later, King David predicted many other details in Christ's death. I should say before Isaiah, actually. David predicted many other details in Christ's death, such as the piercing of his hands and feet the parting of his garments by the Roman soldiers, as well as the fact that that even though he was really tortured, none of his bones would be broken. What an incredible statement, incredible predictions. And there are many, many more. But in light of all of these specific prophecies concerning his first coming being fulfilled, we can trust that the other prophecies concerning his second coming are going to be fulfilled too. And that's why we have such a reliable firm and sure prophetic word. And that's why we know that Christ is coming again, because the word tells us, the word that is filled with prophetic statements. We we know that Christ is coming again, not because we hope it, not because we've been taught it, but because the word says it. And it says it over and over again. It's written over and over in many different places in the scriptures. Now, just for our edification, for our encouragement, what are some of those uh, scriptures that predict Christ's second coming that still await fulfillment. And by the way, let me just say that there are many prophecies in the Old Testament that contain both the first and second coming. And uh, in, it's very, very common to have a prophecy that was fulfilled in his first coming, but still there's an aspect of it that awaits his second coming. This is why the Jewish rabbis had a difficult time in interpreting messianic prophecy. Some of them concluded 
be, they concluded that there must be two messiahs because they, they could not reconcile the fact that in his first coming, he would come as a humble man who would die for our sins, the God man. And then in the second coming, he would come as the glorious king who would establish his kingdom, protect, uh, his, his, uh, protect us from his enemies and, uh, and reign out of Jerusalem. And so they said there must be, be two messiahs, but there wasn't. There was just one messiah with two aspects of his coming, two coming. So let's, let's look, for example, Psalm 2, which is clearly a messianic psalm. Uh, there, there's really no debate about this. Psalm 2 has to be referring to Christ. On numerous occasions, the uh, New Testament writers tell us that it's referring to Christ, specifically based on verse 6. Uh, actually, verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. And and many writers, including the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 1, 5, will tell us that this is referring to Christ. But notice verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Then verse 8, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Uh, this has not yet been fulfilled. Jesus does not reign over the nations in the sense of, of, of being established in rulership in Zion, at, meaning Jerusalem. He does not run the government yet. No, he does in the sense of, of through providence and God's sovereignty, but that's not what this is, is talking about. The nations have not been specifically given to him yet. That awaits his second coming. Also, notice Isaiah chapter 9. This is a good example of uh, his first and second coming being uh, taught and revealed in one passage. Verse 9, it says, the famous Christmas passage, for a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. That has already been fulfilled. That's Christmas time. But this has not been fulfilled. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The Lord Jesus is not yet set down on the throne of David. Now he is set down at at a throne in heaven, But that is not the throne of David. The throne of David is an earthly throne out of Jerusalem. It is in that line of of David. And this has not taken place yet. The governments of the world does not rest upon our Lord's shoulders in this sense. He has not sat upon David's throne ruling the government yet. Zechariah. Let's turn to Zechariah. It is, uh, I give you a hint, it is uh, the, the next to last book of the Old Testament, right before Malachi. Zechariah 14, verses 4 through 9, give us a description of what will occur when Christ comes at his second coming. Verse 4, in that day, Zechariah 14, 4, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south and you will flee by the valley 
of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. In that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time, there will be light and and goes on to say some other things concerning this. But uh, when Jesus comes back, he's coming back literally to where the same spot he left off. Remember, it was from the Mount of Olives that he ascended to be with the father. And the angel said to his disciples, why are you gazing into heaven? This same Jesus will come again. And he's coming again then. Or, or there, that spot, the Mount of Olives, and it will cause a, 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 a change in the topography of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will never be the same. There'll be like an earthquake, and there'll be a new valley there. And listen, there are, in addition to these passages, there are many, many other passages that predict Christ's second coming. Specifically, there are about 220 passages or, or prophecies that remain to be fulfilled, and they will be fulfilled just as literally as the ones predicting his first coming, because the Bible is reliable. It is the sure prophetic word. See, Peter's Peter's concern is that his readers, and us by way of application, would not be shaken in our belief in the doctrine of the second coming. That's his point. And so he informs them that rather than listening to false teachers, rather than embracing that stuff, those who are denying Christ's return, They can depend on the word of God because it is absolutely reliable, absolutely trustworthy. And that's why Peter goes on in verse 19 to give his readers an important warning. In light of the word being sure, there's an important warning. Notice he says, and we have the prophetic word made more sure, or how I would prefer it to be translated is we have more sure the prophetic word. He writes, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now, Peter warns his readers, and it's a warning to us, that since they were exposed to false teachers and their teaching, they needed, he said, to pay careful attention to the scriptures. It seems to me that this warning is even more pertinent to us today. Why? Because we've had 2,000 years of accumulated error, 2,000 years of of error to develop and be systematized and propagated. And today, error is more accessible than certainly in Peter's day and ever before through the media, television and radio and books and literature. There is no end to, to our access to error. And so this is a very important warning. How can we survive spiritually when there's so much false teaching out there that bombards us? Well, Peter's answer is to pay attention to the word of God. Because he says it's like a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter states that this world is is dark. And dark in, in the Bible speaks of ignorance. It speaks of the fallenness of morally, spiritually dark. Literally, the word dark means dirty or, or, or murky. It's sort of gloomy. It's not, not pitch black, but it's just sort of murky, filled with error and false teaching. And it's only God's word that gives enlightenment so that you can have understanding of the way things really are. That's that's very important that you understand this. It's a lamp shining in a dark place. Listen, the only way that you and I can know the truth about the future or anything else in life is by paying attention to the word of God. That's that's it. There's no other way. The written revelation. Without God's written revelation, you and I would not know truth from error. 
we would not know who's a solid Bible teacher and who's a false teacher. We would not know who's out to help you and lead you to the truth or who's out to give you misleading statements. See, you and I do not have the capacity to discern truth apart from error, apart from the light of God's word. When Adam fell and the race fell, every part of man was affected by the fall, and that includes your mind. You cannot figure out what's true just based on your your reasoning. Our minds were affected and are still affected by the fall. Therefore, we lost the capacity to know truth apart from the Bible. This is why, and I think it's a dangerous statement, and I, I hear this from those who want to defend the validity of what they say is psychology, and you'll hear this statement, all truth, they'll say, is God's truth. Now, that's not a bad statement in and of itself, but where they're going with it is bad. What they're saying is, look, there's a lot of truth out there that God hasn't revealed in his word, and we're just picking up on it. So all truth is God's truth. In and of itself, that's a, that's a good statement. However, however, it's a dangerous statement. It's a misleading statement because if all truth is God's truth, and that's right, how do you know it's truth unless you evaluate it in light of the word? How would you possibly know it's truth? So I can say anything is truth. No, we only know it because Jesus said, thy word is truth. You evaluate everything in light of the word of God. That's why Psalm 119.105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. So Peter tells us to pay attention to this reliable prophetic word, which is the only way to see truth in a dark and, and dingy fallen world. However, it may surprise you to know it won't always be like this. Someday we will have full and complete knowledge apart from the Bible. Now that's a, a sounds like a strange statement from this pulpit to make, but notice how Peter ends verse 19. He says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, we're to pay attention to the written word of God until a certain event takes place which Peter refers to as the as a day, the day dawning and the morning star rising in your hearts. And what does he mean by this? These are expressions that both refer to the second coming of Christ. The dawn of the day and the morning star's reflection of the sun are two events that signal the coming of a new day. And Peter has a, a new specific day in mind that he's referring to. It is the dawning of the millennial kingdom of Christ when he returns to this earth. Peter states that when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on earth, we won't need to pay attention to God's word as a lamp in a dark place. Why? Well, it's very simple. Because you don't need a lamp during the daytime, do you? You only need a lamp when it's dark. Nobody uses a flashlight when it's bright day. You use a flashlight when it's dark. You see, when Christ returns, we will have complete and perfect knowledge. Whereas now our knowledge... Our knowledge from Scripture, while absolutely trustworthy, is limited. God has revealed all that we need for now, but there is plenty more for us to learn when we see Him just as He is. Pastor Steve will have Scripture for us to clarify that concept on our next Verse by Verse. I'm glad you could join us today as Pastor Steve Kreloff continues this series from 2 Peter chapter 1. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you're in town and looking for a place to worship, please consider yourself invited to Lakeside. The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. Call the office at 727-441-1714 for service times or stop by the website lakesidechapel.com. 
If First by Verse is blessing you and you'd like to give to help support this ministry, one way to do so is to give by phone by calling the number I just gave you, 727-441-1714. Or you can browse to the giving page on our website, versebyverseradio.org. We try to make it as safe and simple as we can. Also on our website, you'll find a message archive page where we offer all of our previous broadcasts for free streaming or download. That's at versebyverseradio.org. One other website is for our blind listeners. If you have a digital talking book player for the library service from the blind and want a free audio Bible for your digital player, call 800-838-5924 or visit blindbibles.com. That's blindbibles.com or call 800-838-5924. I'm Jerry Peterson. We live in a dark and sinful world surrounded by lies and temptation. This world is not our home but we are still immersed in it. How can we hope to avoid becoming contaminated by it? Psalm 119 verse 9 gives the basic answer. It says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. On the next verse by verse, Pastor Steve will share some ideas about how to do that. I hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's ver- There's a lot going on right now.